Good afternoon. I'd like to thank everyone for coming. Uh, it's a great uh, pleasure of mine to introduce Mark Bradley. Uh, he's going to give a talk entitled The United States and the Global Human Rights Imagination. Uh, Mark is a professor of international history at the University of Chicago. His research and teaching focus on 20th century U.S. international history, uh, the global history of human rights politics, and the post-colonial Southeast Asian history. He's the author, as I know many of you know, of Imagining Vietnam in America, The Making of Postcolonial Vietnam. Uh, it won the Henry J. Benda Prize from the Association of Asian Studies, and he's also the author of Vietnam at War, uh, which Oxford University Press is publishing. Uh, he's the editor of Making Sense of the Vietnam Wars and The Truth Claims, Representation and Human Rights, that Rutgers is publishing, and he serves as co-editor of the Cornell University Press series on the United States and the World. Uh, Mark is also currently completing a book uh, that explores the place of the U.S. in the global human rights revolutions of the 20th century that Cambridge University Press is going to publish, and I'm sure will be much of what we hear about today. Before I turn the podium over to Mark, I want to also announce that uh, Mershon has another conference that we're involved with, uh, organized by Amy Schumann, who I saw here a minute ago, yes, called Confronting Images and Testimonies, uh, which will also deal uh, very much with the human rights issues. Uh, and it's on March 4th and 5th. It's organized by the Department of English and the Department of Art, Living, Culture Initiative at the Wexner Center for the Arts. And there's a poster here. I won't go through all of it, but uh, there's a very uh, prominent set of speakers coming. And I'll leave it here on the table. Amy, yeah, is that I'll right? Put it up on the door. It doesn't remind all of you. So with that introduction, without further ado, I'd like to use Mark Bradley. Thanks. Um, is this microphone doing what it's supposed to do for you? Okay, good. Um, Rick, thank you for the introduction. Thank you for the invitation to come. Um, thanks to the Mirshan Center, who are incredibly hospitable and helpful. Beth is like the most amazing person I've ever dealt with in these kinds of arrangements, and very much appreciate what she did. And thanks to Alice for um, sticking with me on this and having me come. Um, appreciate it. What I'd like to do is to begin by taking us back to the spring of 1946. Uh, this was a moment when two people, uh, Orsel and Minnie McGee, turned to the Detroit branch of the NAACP for some help. A group of white property owners in northwestern Detroit had gone to the circuit court for Wayne County to oust the McGees, who were African-American, from the home that they had purchased some 10 years before. The case rested on a racially restrictive covenant adopted by white homeowners that no property in the neighborhood, quote, shall be used or occupied by any persons except those of the Caucasian race. Among those who signed the covenant were the white couple who had sold their home to the McGee's. Two Detroit-based African-American attorneys, both of whom were members of the NAACP's National Legal Committee, decided to take the case on the McGee's behalf, though the circuit court in Wayne County initially ruled against them. And so the attorneys appealed their case to the Supreme Court of the state of Michigan, and in what was known as Sipes v. McGee, wrote an appellant brief that emphasized the ways in which this lower court ruling was contrary to what they termed sound public policy. To support that argument, the brief gave sustained attention 
to the decision of a neighboring court, one not in the United States but in Canada, the Ontario High Court in a decision called In Re Drummond Rem that had been made just a few months before, a decision that refused to enforce a restrictive covenant against Jews in Canada because it violated the human rights provisions of the United Nations Charter, which Canada had recently ratified. The relevance of the Wren opinion in this case, the brief continued, was reinforced by, quote, the wide official acceptance of the international policies and declarations frowning on the type of discrimination which the covenant would seem to perpetuate. Sipes v. McGee, in fact, was the first of an escalating series of cases that made their way through American courts in the late 1940s, all of which employed what was then a novel legal argument, that the controlling authority of international human rights norms essentially trumped existing federal and state law. More often, they pointed to the language of the UN Charter itself, and its promises of protections for individual human rights across national borders. These cases were brought by Japanese-American, African-American, and Native American plaintiffs, and all of them used a transnational frame to approach a variety of instances of domestic discrimination at home. In housing, in land and fishing rights, in public accommodations, in education, and in one case that I'll get to toward the end, where a dead body could come to rest. Together, they marked what I believe to be the first instant of emergent global rights norms entering directly into American political and juridical processes. Now, my interest in this case is part of this larger book that Rick was mentioning, a book project very much still in progress, that essentially seeks to examine how the United States, both state and non-state actors alike, shaped and were shaped by the emergence of a global human rights order after 1945. A project that focuses on the 1940s, which is where most of my remarks will go today, also thinks about the 1970s in some detail, and to some extent comes into the present moment as well. Now, with a few recent exceptions, and I notice one of them was here in the fall, Liz Borgward, with few recent exceptions, human rights in many ways has been written out of the U.S. international history literature, where I think a Cold War lens tended to render transnational rights talk as at best a kind of auxiliary story to what was seen as the more significant Soviet-American geopolitical struggle in this period. That marginalization has been reinforced, I think, by a broader sense of American exceptionalism, a particular exceptionalism around human rights, in which the United States is seen as a kind of exemplary instantiation of the protection and enforcement of rights at home, and is always reticent, and for some who argue in these lines, implicitly justifiably so, to allow international norms to intrude into the sovereign space of the nation. Now, in fact, one way of reading the cases that I want to talk to you about this afternoon focusing on their immediate outcomes could, in fact, reinforce these prevailing perspectives. Notwithstanding the very expensive claims that they make and the ways in which they push against more rigid conceptions of national sovereignty, the cases themselves never brought 
a clear resolution to the appropriate balance between global norms and domestic policy. There was no one single Supreme Court decision that you can point to in this period of time that granted full legitimacy to these arguments. Moreover, the cases, as we'll see, unleashed a storm of controversy, becoming, in a way, a central symbol for those American policymakers who sought to severely limit U.S. participation in an emerging global human rights order. These efforts, again, were successful at least in the immediate moment and forced a virtual disavowal of global rights norms in American domestic space by the Eisenhower administration in the mid-1950s. So all of this, in some ways, could be read as confirmation that traditionally-minded notions of American sovereignty, again, ultimately trump more elastic visions of human rights and sovereignty that link guarantees of individual human rights somewhere beyond the nation state. So, in these senses, the global rights cases might be thought of as something of an anomaly. Rare exceptions, but ones that ultimately prove the exceptionalist rule of the impermeability of the American state to transnational forces. If that were just so, we could sort of pack up and go. I have a somewhat different approach that I'd like to suggest to these cases, one that's focused more on process than outcome. And in focusing on process, trying to explore how I think these cases reveal in microcosm the very contested and contingent nature of American engagement by both political elites and local actors in global human rights politics of the period. If you look at the cases in this way, they become one of what I've found to be a surprising number of moments. Surprising, again, given this sort of exceptionalist interpretive frame by which people have thought about these questions. Surprising moments that allow me to consider, again, complexities and contestations about the American place in what it seems to me is a kind of global human rights imagination of the 20th century. What I'm keen to do in the larger project and hope to begin to suggest to you today is in some ways to normalize the United States in talking about questions of human rights or to put it a different way, to borrow a term from one of my colleagues at Chicago, Depes Chakabarty, to provincialize in some ways our understanding of how a variety of U.S. state and non-state actors at times appropriate and articulate, and at other times transform or simply reject transnational human rights norms and practices. In exploring the cases from the 1940s today, there are three issues that I want to focus on. First, I want to talk some about the nature of the rights claims that are being made in them, and in particular to think something about the conditions of possibility that made these claims possible and also plausible again, in an American context often thought to be so bounded by human rights exceptionalism. Second, I want to talk a little bit about the impact of these cases on what was an emerging official U.S. hostility to global norm-making on human rights questions. And finally, third, I want to talk a little bit, again, about how this focus on process rather than immediate outcome, and again, a kind of longer historical perspective on these cases can help point us to the lingering potency of the place and power of transnational rights claims in both global and American cultural politics after 1950. So first then to conditions of possibility. As some of these global rights cases were making their way through American courts, both at the state and the federal level in the late 1940s, a number of state and non-state actors 
supported the petitioners in their claims and also began themselves to look to the authority of global human rights norms to combat instances of racial discrimination at home. The first mention I have found of, at the national level at least, of employing UN Charter human rights provisions to combat domestic discrimination cases emerged in an NAACP conference on racial covenants in July of 1945. This just a month after the deliberations at San Francisco to set the United Nations in motion had taken place. As part of a far-reaching conversation about legal strategies for attacking racial covenants, Participants discussed the relevance of UN Charter claims both for these domestic public policy arguments that Sipes vs. McGee had used and also for exploiting public opinion to their advantage, a sense that people in general in the country were sympathetic to these sorts of claims in the United Nations and that this would work in terms of, if not a legal strategy, at least a persuasive strategy. Now, along with these conversations, there was an effort spearheaded by W.E.B. Du Bois uh, and the NAACP in the summer of 1946 to submit a petition to the United States or the United Nations exposing various racist practices in the United States and their violation of UN human rights charter norms. This became and is familiar perhaps to some of you an appeal to the world. I want to pick up in just a little bit about how this too was not isolated. There were other global actors at the same moment trying to take advantage of this UN petition for human rights claims as well, but we'll get to that in just a bit. Beyond the NAACP, the potentialities of the UN Charter for, again, realizing domestic civil rights also surfaced in the deliberations of President Truman's Committee on Civil Rights. Its influential final report to secure these rights put forward what it called a strong argument that U.S. ratification of the U.N. Charter, and particularly the human rights provisions of the Charter, gave Congress treaty power to protect domestic civil rights. Now, there were a variety of U.S., what we would now call non-governmental actors. I don't think people called themselves NGOs in the 1940s, but you know what I mean. Uh, the NAACP, the American Jewish Congress, the National Lawyers Guild, the ACLU, Japanese American Citizens League, the American Association for the United Nations, and others all shared these broader views and lent vocal support to these global rights cases, often in amicus briefs, again, as they move through the judiciary, both at the state and federal level. Now, the American state itself adopted the global rights argument of some of the petitioners in various restrictive covenants cases, which as they moved forward to the United States Supreme Court became collapsed under the case Shelley v. Kramer. Now, the way the government was conceiving of this case, it was not all rooted in transnational human rights uh, norms. The, you read these briefs, obviously there's a lot of attention here to domestic practice, to constitutional law. But it is striking that in the brief that the Attorney General provides in Shelley, that specific attention is drawn to American support of international human rights agreements. Again, arguing that restrictive covenants were inconsistent with the public policy of the United States. In particular, what the government's brief does is highlight the preamble in Articles 55 and 56 of the UN Charter. That's where the human rights provisions are spelled out in most detail. And remind readers of the brief of the Charter's approval, again, as a treaty by the United States Senate in 1945. So as one thinks again about a certain density and circulation of this kind of discourse in this 
period of time, there are basically two questions that emerged for me. One was, how did petitioners, their lawyers, these sympathetic non-state actors, and at times even some agents of the American state, come to decide to look outside of the nation as a potentially powerful tool? How did they come to see that these, again, very emergent global rights norms could be a powerful tool to combat racial discrimination at home? And second, and more importantly, probably from a sort of legal argumentative point of view, why did they believe that American judges might be receptive to these arguments? Right? Part of what lawyers do is just throw it out there and see what's going to convince, but one wants to think before they do that that there's some sense that that might potentially be convincing. So why, at this moment, do these lawyers and others turn to this kind of language? seems to me that these global rights cases of the late 1940s emerge against an extremely fluid political moment following World War II, a fluid political moment both at home and abroad. Scholars of African American, Native American, Mexican American, and Asian American history have devoted significant attention to the struggle for civil rights in the wartime and immediate post-war periods. But if it's clear that civil rights movements and civil rights litigation were ascendant on the domestic political stage, the kinds of claims that would be advanced in those cases and also the kinds of claims that would be recognized by courts were far more complex and contingent than much of previous scholarship has been willing to acknowledge. As Jacqueline Dowd Hall has recently argued, a scholarly and popular fixation on Brown v. Board as the kind of foundational genealogy of the civil rights movement, in some ways has obscured the varied scope and significance of its discourse and practices in the 1940s, in which calls for workplace democracy, union wages, fair and full employment, universal health care, and affordable housing were just as common and seen as complementary to demands for political rights or educational equity. In this emergence, and more capacious conception of the domestic politics of civil rights then, invocations of UN Charter provisions on human rights, I think, should be seen as part of a broader and diverse, if relatively understudied, repertoire of rights claims that were being advanced in the early post-war period. So in some ways, at home, again, this more capacious conception of what rights are about seems to fit with going toward the transnational. Now, as the struggle for civil rights at home accelerated, both during the wartime and immediate post-war periods, there are parallel developments in the international sphere that produce, as many of you know, an unprecedented series of transnational declarations, of covenants, and conventions to codify human rights norms. The adoption of the UN Charter in 1945, and perhaps more dramatically, the UN Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. Again, the first really global documents to talk about the ways in which individual rights should be protected at some level beyond the state are the most dramatic and most familiar instantiations of really what was a wider phenomena in this period of time. For example, in Latin America, delegates at several Pan-American Congresses during World War II adopted a kind of regional human rights vocabulary that in many ways anticipated the Universal Declaration and culminated in the adoption of the American Declaration of the Rights and Duties of Man in 1948. Immediately after World War II, Western European states began to draft their own rights lexicon, producing the European Convention on Human Rights in 1950. 
In this same period, discussions are ongoing at the United Nations on a convention to outlaw genocide, a global freedom of information covenant, renewed attention to the Geneva Convention's protections for the rights of non-combatants at times of war. This is the infamous common article three that gave the Bush administration so much trouble recently. Protective rights of asylum for refugees, and also beginning a conversation about taking the sort of aspirational norms of the Universal Declaration and turning those into, again, more legally binding international covenants. So a lot is happening in a short period of time in a variety of spaces and places at the transnational level on questions of rights. Now, the United States is engaged in these developments. American state and non-state actors intensely involved in many ways in the construction of this new global rights order from the outset, although in ways that would become deeply intertwined with domestic racial politics. Now, one can say that, you know, rights talk has been embedded in U.S. political discourse for much of its history, but the idea of human rights and their transnational iterations is really something that I think only gains currency and power during World War II. Throughout the wartime period, in many other places in the United States, but in the United States, domestic religious, legal, labor, and civil rights organizations joining with members of the Roosevelt administration in attempting to place global protection of human rights at the forefront of an imagined post-war international order. But if, in certain ways, American leadership on these questions was critical, it was also itself marked by uh, contradictions and ambiguities. Carol Anderson, perhaps, has captured these best. I assume most people know Carol's work here. It began as a dissertation at OSU, a terrific book, Eyes Off the Prize. And as Carol suggests, these official rhetorical commitments by the American state to global human rights protections lay in uneasy contrast to the fierce opposition of many white Southerners, and also the shallowness of some uh, white liberal commitments to the African-American struggle for human rights at home. Along with a vocal minority of American conservatives who viewed almost all international commitments with suspicion, this lingering potency of race in wartime and post-war America and its political valences could often prompt reticence on the part of policymakers over how far global human rights norms might intrude in domestic political space. The drafting of the human rights provisions of the UN Charter, again, which became so central to the claims that are made in these global human rights cases of the late 1940s, reflects both the hesitations and potentialities of official engagement by the American state in global human rights politics. At the San Francisco conference that brought the UN into being in 1945, the American delegation was under heavy pressure from domestic groups, as well as actors in Western Europe and the Global South that strongly favored some kind of international guarantee of human rights, and so proposed the provisions that put human rights at the center of the UN Charter. The language of Article I, in which member states pledge, quote, respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms for all, and particularly Article 55, which guaranteed freedom of discrimination without distinction as to race, sex, religion, or language, were the products of these efforts. But concerns about a conservative and racialist backlash that these provisions might produce back at home and also fears by the Western European powers that the Charter's human rights language 
could be employed by anti-colonial movements against them to hasten the end of empire, prompted the American delegation to introduce language that promised, quote, nothing in the charter should authorize intervention in matters that are essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of any state. This would become Article 2.7 of the Charter, the Universal uh, Jurisdiction Clause, or Domestic Jurisdiction Clause. But my question is, what would essentially come to mean? The clause says essentially within American jurisdiction, and that's, it seems to me, where people have room to go with this particular question. At the close of World War II, the relationship between the very embryonic global rights order outlined in the Charter particularly, again, this insistence that member states must protect the individual rights of all their citizens and the domestic jurisdiction clause, I think, remain open. The Charter's articulation of global rights norms, some contemporary observers, both inside and outside the United States, believe offers at least the possibility of rethinking more traditional bounds of sovereignty. Indeed, in an episode that runs parallel to the global rights cases in the United States, such rethinking brought the successful efforts of the Indian delegation at the United Nations in 1946 to win the support of the General Assembly for a resolution that criticized the passage in South Africa of the Asiatic Land Tenure and Indian Representation Act for its discriminatory treatment of the country's Indian population. Now, the ironies of this particular case run quite deep. The South African premier, Jan Smuts, who had in fact drafted the human rights language in the preamble of the UN Charter, apparently never dreaming it would have any implications for his own government, or quite frankly, probably any implications at all, um, insisted that the domestic jurisdiction clause prevented UN discussion of or action on the treatment of Indians in South Africa. But in the event, after tense and prolonged debate, India's argument that the General Assembly could hear and rule on cases like this one that violated charter human rights language won the day by a two-thirds majority of the Assembly. So it was in this liminal post-war moment when articulations of rights and sovereignty were both in play at the intersection of the domestic and the transnational in the United States and also elsewhere in the world that the petitioners in the American global rights cases and the judges that heard them favorably acted to harness the potentialities of international human rights guarantees and more relaxed conceptions of national sovereignty, again, to combat racial discrimination at home. No single legal opinion, as I mentioned at the outset, brought some full resolution to the tensions between these issues. But there are a substantial number of court decisions that get made at both the state and the federal level where judges are wrestling with how to think about putting these two things together. And there is a kind of spectrum of responses that emerge in this period of time. On one end of the spectrum, we can go back to this case that I mentioned at the outset, this racial covenants case in Detroit. What the Michigan Supreme Court chooses to do in that case, as other courts take courts do in similar cases that are moving through in this period of time is perhaps the softest way of thinking about what the relationship between global norms and, again, a sort of state sovereignty might be. The majority opinion here 
very concerned with sorting out the efficacy of these public policy arguments, including those based on the UN Charter. Ultimately, though, the court was not willing to do much more than acknowledge their sort of hortatory or potentially suasive power, but not willing to suggest that there was a kind of legality here that needed to be recognized. So that's a particularly sort of soft side of this kind of horizon of interpretations in this period of time. But other cases brought increasingly harder ways of thinking about these questions. Three opinions in particular brought much more forceful articulations, again, of the controlling power of these international legal norms for domestic practices. In another Japanese, uh, or in a Japanese land rights case, Oyama versus California, the majority of opinion in the Supreme Court in 1948 did not, in fact, make reference to the charter arguments. But two concurrences strongly suggest that striking down this alien land law in California ought to be done because it violated American responsibilities under the UN Charter. For instance, in his concurrence, Justice Hugo Black specifically refers to Article 55 of the UN Charter asking, quote, how can this nation be faithful to this international pledge if state laws which bar land ownership and occupancy by aliens on account of race are permitted to be enforced? Justice Frank Murphy's concurrence put the case even more strongly. And this was a particularly fun concurrence for me to read. Murphy's papers are in the Library of Congress. So all the drafts that he was working on are there. And you know, often they're kind of staffing these things out to clerks and that sort of thing. But it was clear that this particular concurrence, Murphy wanted to write himself and wrote draft after draft after draft. And the language gets stronger as the drafts continue. So Murphy's somebody who was engaged very much in these questions. The penultimate draft in the concurrence, Murphy argues, quote, this nation has recently pledged itself through the United Nations Charter to promote respect for and observance of human rights. The alien land law stands as a barrier to the fulfillment of that national pledge. Its inconsistency with the Charter, which has been duly ratified and adopted by the United States, is but one more reason why the statute must be condemned. It is an unhappy facsimile, a disheartening reminder of the racial policy pursued by those forces of evil whose destruction recently necessitated a devastating war. Now, in its claim that a higher law trumped American state and federal law in cases of domestic racial discrimination, the opinion in another Japanese land rights case, this case, Seifuji versus California, was the most muscular assertion of the controlling power of international norms in this period of time. In an April 1950 unanimous uh, opinion, the court argued, quote, discrimination against the people of one race is contrary to both the letter and to the spirit of the charter, which, as a treaty, is paramount to every law of every state in conflict with it. The alien land law must therefore yield to the treaty as the superior authority. Now, if these cases can help us thicken both the real and imagined potentialities of an emergent global human rights order in the American context, they also, I think, can help reveal with greater analytical precision, both from the top down and the bottom up, the forces that prompted the American state in the 1950s to retreat from deeper engagement in transnational rights politics. And I'd like to move to that sort of second dimension of my talk now. In fact, the Seifuji opinion, which I just read you, this is the very muscular assertion of this, 
brought with it an immediate storm of controversy. Within days of the announcement of the California court's decision, it was denounced on the floors of both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. Quote, our sovereignty, Representative Paul Schaefer, Republican of Michigan, told his colleagues in what was a typical response, is too sacred to be tossed away for a mess of international pottage. Somebody's got to help me out about what pottage is exactly. It doesn't sound good, but I'm not exactly sure what it is as opposed to porridge, pottage. Anyway. um, In the Senate, several members deplored the decision for opening up to Congress the right to legislate issues that they believe the Constitution reserved to the states. Among them, tellingly, quote, suffrage, schools, segregation, and the poll tax. Frank Murphy, who was the uh, president of the American Bar Association, weighs in, attaching almost apocalyptic significance to this Seifuji opinion, arguing that the case essentially allowed a foreigner, the United Nations, to become, he said, the president of the United States and threatened to turn the United States government, quote, from a republic into a socialized and centralized state. Ultimately, Seifuji and these other global rights cases of the late 1940s emerged as very powerful symbolic vehicles through which proponents of what became known as the Bricker Amendment sought to severely limit U.S. official participation in the global human rights order. Senator Bricker is one of your guys, an Ohio Republican. Some of you may know Mr. Bricker's career. Um, In 1951, Senator John Bricker introduces a resolution opposing a draft UN International Covenant on Human Rights. This was the effort to give the kind of aspirational declaration some sort of legal teeth. The covenant, Bricker argued, quote, could be more appropriately titled as a covenant on human slavery or subservience of government. Those who drafted the covenant on human rights repudiated the underlying theory of the Bill of Rights, the freedom to be left alone, Bricker said. At the same time, he cites the Seifuji case repeatedly as evidence of the ominous potential of the UN to effect unwanted changes within American domestic policy. Now, in early 1952, Bricker and his allies decided the grave peril that these cases presented, along with the covenant, to American sovereignty and values required recourse to a constitutional amendment that severely constrained the treaty-making power of the president. There are voluminous hearings that are held on the Bricker Amendment in 1952 and 1953, and they're a particularly rich site, it seems to me, for capturing the nature of American opposition to transnational intrusions on domestic policy and on questions of rights. Laced throughout these discussions and debates, Senator Bricker, along with his allies in the Republican Party, the American Bar Association, and a number of conservative organizations make frequent reference throughout the hearings to Seifuji and other cases, again, as emblematic of a transnational assault on the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, quote, thereby forcing unacceptable theories and practices upon the citizens of the United States. The UN Draft Covenant on Human Rights was denounced variously in testimony as, quote, utter nonsense, a blueprint for tyranny, and the greatest threat to American sovereignty we have seen. In these hearings, the global rights cases and this draft UN covenant emerge as markers and accelerators of more deeply rooted conservative suspicions of the international and of big government statism, but also of efforts to preserve the sensibilities and practices of Jim Crow segregation in the post-war period. 
But it seems to me that the unfolding of opposition to the assertion of global rights norms in an American context, again, as it emerges in these very public hearings on the Bricker Amendment, are best viewed as performances of sovereignty. In making that claim, I'm essentially building on the work of Giorgio Agamben and also Judith Butler, particularly what some scholars of the state have called the necessity of, quote, repeated performances of sovereignty to mask its inherent instability. In their often shrill insistence on the naturalness of an American state, somehow set apart from the global processes that surround it, the Bricker hearings, it seems to me, ultimately betray the essential brittleness of these kinds of imagined constructions of sovereignty. Now, it's hard to imagine someone better suited to perform sovereignty than somebody like John Bricker. He was a bombastic orator, in some ways recalling uh, Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt and the world of the Midwest that he creates. Bricker, also one of the most outspoken conservative members of the Senate. The Eisenhower people also felt he was one of the dumbest members of the Senate, but that would, in a sense, be an interpartisan judgment. I'll leave that to the side. <laughs> In stage managing the hearings that surrounded the amendments, Bricker sought testimony from such reliable conservative allies as the Chamber of Commerce, the American Flag Committee, the Daughters of the American Revolution, along with the American Bar Association, and also presented as the hearings went by a variety of notionally plain-spoken Americans from the heartland who voiced their shared outrage at the threats to sovereignty that were posed by global rights norms. They didn't always put it quite that way, but that's what they were getting at. Although ultimately, if narrowly defeated, the Bricker Amendment prompted a public pledge by the Eisenhower administration in the spring of 1953 that essentially the United States would opt out of further participation in human rights treaty making in the United Nations and also promise to withdraw the Genocide Convention and other uh, pending international human rights instruments from uh, consideration or ratification by the Senate. Now, both Eisenhower and Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, as I said, viewed Bricker with some distaste. And the administration vigorously opposes the Bricker Amendment in large measure because what they see it to be is a broader challenge to the authority of the executive branch in the making of foreign policy. And that's often the way the Bricker Amendment story has been told. In doing so, however, the Eisenhower administration, it seems to me, embraced the performative dimension of the Bricker hearings to undercut the potential political potency of human rights and sovereignty arguments that Bricker and his supporters were making. In his testimony to the Senate, in which he revealed that Eisenhower would not sign any UN human rights treaties, not now, not ever, Dulles said, quote, we do not ourselves look upon a treaty as a means which we would now select as the proper and most effective way to spread throughout the world the goals of human liberty. The administration, he continued, in a direct reference to the global rights cases of the late 1940s, welcomed, quote, a reversal of the trend toward trying to use treaty-making power to affect internal social change. So Bricker and his allies were successful in forcing what would become a three-decade-long official disinterest by the American state in the promotion of global human rights norms. 
But if the human rights crusades of the 1940s were a less central part of American and also to some extent international political discourse throughout most of the 1950s and the 1960s, they reemerge again, as many of you know, with a real vengeance in the 1970s. The fluorescence of Amnesty International in its Nobel Prize in 1977, the claims for political and social rights by European, or excuse me, Soviet dissidents, the Helsinki Accords, the Charter 77 movement in Eastern Europe, U.S. congressional prohibitions on aid to the worst violators of state uh, by states of human rights, Carter human rights diplomacy, and transnational campaigns against human rights abuses in Latin America and apartheid in South Africa, to name just a few were all products of this re-explosion of human rights talk in the 1970s. Now, it's important to note, I think, that this recovery of global human rights talk, in the United States at least, was oriented almost entirely outward. Naming and shaming human rights violations taking place someplace other than the United States. The kinds of appropriations of global rights norms to overcome domestic discrimination that were so much a part of this moment of the 1940s generally don't reappear in the United States in this period of time. Although, interestingly, in the emergent gay rights movement of the 1970s, there is a language of human rights, and that's something that we can talk a little bit more about. So there, there are hints of this, but again, one sees it much, much less in the United States. By contrast, Almost everywhere else in the world, the re-employment of this human rights language is to combat domestic human rights abuses at home. So that dimension of it is re-emerging every place. Global rights talk is emerging in the United States, but again, directed outward rather than inward. Given the kind of juridical focus of my remarks today, I think most notably one sees this with the European Court for Human Rights essentially set up in 1950 as part of the European Convention, but there is no caseload to the European uh, court really until the 1970s and the 1980s. That's when it begins to accelerate. So again, this the first transnational court that can call a state to account for human rights abuses of one of its citizens. And what people argue here is the crucial thing for the Europeans may be the end of the process of decolonization. So that the threat that the European Convention posed, perhaps, to the imperial order after the war is essentially now gone, allowing the, case, uh, allowing the court now to operate in a European context. Again, an interesting development from the 70s I'd be happy to talk more about later. Now, if that's the 70s, in the 1990s and more recently, it does seem to me that some of the domestic sensibilities of the 1940s did and do reemerge in the American context. For me, the contemporary moment recalls tensions in American engagement with global human rights politics from this earlier period. On the one hand, the Supreme Court, or at least the majority of the Supreme Court pre-Roberts, has been increasingly open to using transnational norms to consider domestic rights questions. As its majority uh, opinion in the 2003 Lawrence v. Texas sodomy case and several other cases suggests as well. And yet, quite obviously, the Bush administration's willingness to abrogate international norms about torture, among other developments, certainly betrays the lingering brick brickerite sensibilities of the 1950s. Although, 
As some legal scholars have intriguingly begun to argue, Bush policy may in the end have had quite the opposite effect intended by its architects. Instead of drawing the United States away, it has appeared in certain respects to enmesh the United States more deeply into global rights norms. Whatever its broader trajectories, we don't really know where this remarkable recovery of the lexicon of human rights in the 1970s and its ubiquitous presence today really came from. Historians are only just beginning to direct attention to this question. There are some intriguing hypotheses. In one view, the collapse of competing utopias in the 1970s, whether socialist internationalism in Europe, the liberal Cold War order in the United States, or the emancipatory discourse of third worldism, opened up a space in which a variety of local actors, from American presidents to Soviet dissidents and Latin American radicals, began to see the transnational protection of human rights as a compelling form of anti-politics. A complementary, although more structural, explanation locates the transformations of the 1970s in the accelerating forces of globalization, most notably the emergent power of transnational finance and global civil society that challenged the predominant political and economic statism of the post-war international order. From this perspective, the result was to use a political science term, a world of complex interdependence in which traditional state geopolitics increasingly gave way to a new transnational politics of human rights, of public health, of the environment, and also of the global economy. Now, in positing a fundamental break with the past, whether it be shifts in belief or the international system or some combination of both, These arguments, I think, do help us begin to understand critical dimensions of the return to global human rights politics in the 1970s. And yet, in so forcefully drawing attention to ruptures rather than continuities, they implicitly, and actually sometimes quite explicitly, did not attach much significance to the human rights histories of the 1940s for making sense of the 1970s or the present moment. And that somehow doesn't feel quite right to me. I want to close by offering one last case, suggestive, I think, of the intersections and larger meanings we might accord to the place of the United States in the global human rights politics of the 1940s and the 1970s. One that points to the persistence of transnational rights sensibilities at the local and non-state level, and also, I think, points to the continuing fragilities of performative sovereignty. The case is Rice versus Sioux City Memorial Cemetery, and it emerged in 1953 in the wake of the death of Sergeant John Rice in the Korean War, and also just on the eve of the Bricker-inspired Eisenhower administration rejection of global human rights norms. The case went like this. Rice's widow essentially had entered into a contract with the Sioux City Cemetery for the burial of her husband. At the graveside service, though, several officials for the cemetery noted that there were a lot of Native American mourners amongst the funeral party. And they suspected, in fact, that perhaps John Rice was Native American himself. So after the funeral ceremonies were done, they visited Mrs. Rice, who told them that, yes, indeed, their assumption was correct. 
Um, her husband was Native American. The cemetery, however, had a Caucasians-only burial policy, and so they ordered her husband's body dug up. Now, let's just recap here. Korean War veteran killed in the war, body being dug up in the Caucasian-only cemetery. Um, the action, in fact, drew immediate and national attention, uh, and it prompted President Truman's intervention, who arranged for Rice to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery. But Rice's widow was a, a kind of feisty person, and she was not placated by this symbolic gesture on the part of the Truman administration. And so she sues the cemetery in Iowa courts, and she does so on UN charter grounds. The Iowa Supreme Court dismisses the case, saying that you know the UN charter has no applicability here in the Iowa case, and so she decides to take her case to the US Supreme Court. Again, long brief that's prepared by her lawyers to the court, dealing at length with charter-inspired claims, arguing that the Iowa court had, quote, violated the basic and very fundamental concepts of equality, not only announced but also pledged by the United Nations Charter and all of the member nations of which the United States is one. Now, in the end, after initially suggesting otherwise, the Supreme Court declined to hear the case, and it was dismissed in 1955. But that outcome, too, that immediate outcome, I think, is of less significance than the persisting use of UN human rights claims by Rice's widow and her lawyers, even after the Bricker Amendment controversy and the Eisenhower administration's response to it appeared to make quite clear an official hostility to international human rights guarantees. And in that sense, it seems to me that Rice offers a transition to a new global politics of human rights in the United States and also elsewhere in the world in the 1970s, one in which advocacy and suasion by non-state actors came to challenge and ultimately transcend official state intransigence on these transnational human rights questions. Now, as I have worked out the kind of global and American dimensions of this, again, larger book project from which this paper is drawn, I have to confess that I found the terrain of the transnational to be a really wonderful and kind of liberating scholarly space in which to situate my work. If the boundaries of many of the historical actors with whom I am most concerned were fluid, at least they imagined them to be, so too have been in many ways the boundaries for me as a historian as I'm crossing geographic and also in some cases conceptual and disciplinary borders. These kinds of crossings or transgressions have had a profound impact on my work, and I think they speak to some of the way, larger ways in which the international history of the 20th century is now being reconceived and rewritten. But I must also confess that they pose serious interpretive dilemmas. In particular, how to simultaneously locate actors at the intersection of the local and the sometimes distant and elite space of the global human rights order, and to do that in a way that flattens neither plane of meaning and significance, and is also sensitive to questions of multiple agency and differentials in power. But in fact, it seems to me, we all have tensions in our work, right? These are the ones I bear. But in fact, these tensions seem to me analytically productive ones. They get at what the cultural anthropologist Anna Singh has recently termed the interpretively rich point of friction between the global and the local. Friction between and among a variety of actors abounds in the 1940s. 
whether it be the impact of transnational human rights norms on an African-American couple about to lose their home, Indian sensibilities about their compatriots in South Africa, or the widow of a Native American soldier who served and died in the Korean War, or even for the bombastic Senator John Bricker or Jan Smuts, as it does, this friction, as it does in the policies of the American state and the accelerating non-state campaigns of transnational human rights advocacy in the 1970s and beyond. It is in exploring these kinds of frictions that I'm hoping to make real both the richness and the limitations of American engagement in the 20th century global human rights imagination. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, these, those, are, those are really interesting questions and they're really hard questions, I think, in doing some of this because one of the things that you're trying to do, I think, is to, to capture a moment and people's broader sensibilities about the plausibility of something, right? Which we tend to assume people never thought of as very plausible. It was idealistic. It didn't really have much traction on the ground, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What... And again, I don't feel like I've gotten fully there yet. And I don't know whether I'm... I, I used to think I'll get there. Now I don't know. I, I think it's, it's going to have to be an argument that people find convincing or not. I don't know that it can be fully persuasive for all. But I, I do think that there is a power of these ideas for people that has not been fully recognized. And I think one way into that question is about the total transformation in some ways of the civil rights literature and expanding out what that literature was about so that people were imagining possibilities at home that were far broader than, again, the Brown v. Board thing would make us think. And so this, in a way, I think, becomes part of that sort of larger conception for people, and it, it works well with that. But how at various moments you know you quantify that or you convince people of that or I, it gets very tricky. Except to say with the Bricker thing, you know there is this sense with the Eisenhower administration that they, if they can take that off the table, then the other dangers that they see Bricker posing for them, which they see as quite substantial. It's not all about human rights for them if it's about human rights at all. But the fact that they think that by taking that off the table, maybe you know, that'll make Bricker go away or that'll make the problem go away. Again, there are just different ways you can read that. One is, all right, for three decades, that's it. The other is, wow, that had to be like really powerful to people that you messed with that as a particular thing. Like if it didn't resonate, if those things didn't matter, if they didn't, 
Now, somebody who wants to kind of poke at what I'm doing can say, well, it's all at the level of symbolic politics. Nobody really cared all that much about it. So, you know, it was a way of sort of offloading something to get something else. And that's where when the cases come back in, I think it's harder to make those claims. There obviously were a lot of people out there in a variety of settings that were seeing those as potentially powerful claims. And that's where I think also the, the opinions come to matter. They put it out there and they're also getting opinions back. Not definitive opinions, but obviously people who see a certain sympathy in that line of argument. And again, what does that suggest about a kind of mindset, both international and domestic, about these questions in that period of time? I, I don't know if that helps a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, Judy. I think that's right. I mean, what I was trying to do, you know, basically the 70s and human rights is pretty open season. There, there are a number of really great younger historians who are starting to work there. Brad Simpson, who I thought was coming, but I guess isn't coming. But there's a bunch of people who are, are starting to work there. But they, the, the way a lot of that work is kind of, has gone on the, the sort of tensions and contradictions, like, okay, the talk's back, but actually when you see how it plays out on the ground, it, it plays out in uneven ways which is all very interesting, I think, but it doesn't get to the question of how did it get there to begin with, right? Where does it reemerge from? And I also think it doesn't necessarily get to the question of why there's a convergence or a simultaneity of the language in so many disparate places. Like, Soviet dissidents aren't talking the talk because Jimmy Carter is talking the talk, because actually they're talking the talk long before Jimmy Carter is talking. You know, and for Latin Americans, same kind of thing. For Koreans, the same kind of thing. So what, how do we begin to understand why this is happening in separate places that eventually comes together as some sort of global discourse? So what I was trying to do was just sort of in very sketchy terms, there are two people who have tried to think about the bigger question. One is Sam Moyne, who does the utopias thing. And the other is Daniel Sargent's thesis that does the kind of structural thing. So all I was doing was just trying to suggest that that's as kind of as far, I think, as people have gotten at thinking about where that is. And I, I think both are helpful. I don't think both finally do it. And I think part of what they don't do is what you're getting at, that there is, there are some continuities that are going on in that period of time, right? And that rupture doesn't explain that necessarily. But I also think, and this is just a really hard thing, because if you're doing this kind of global or transnational history, I mean, how do you have a handle on the Latin American case in a really textured way? Not, you know, at the sort of level of the transnational, but in a more sort of textured local way. How do you have a handle on the Korean case? How do you have a handle on, you know, it gets, it gets tricky. So you're building sort of on other literatures, what people are saying about this or that. And to me, there is something to this notion that it becomes a language for people that for very different reasons either has a political utility or a belief. And they're different and sometimes for people it's one or the other and sometimes it's both. And that's hard to kind of untangle in certain ways about you know why it is and when it is and how that works. 
But I also think the other thing that's really hard to think through, and I, I haven't yet, is you get now to the present moment, and a lot of human rights talk has a kind of thin quality about it. You know, it, does, it doesn't have the thickness of what we think of as you know, sort of traditional kinds of ideologies. And so what happens when human rights is everywhere now? You can't turn around without human rights embedded in all kinds of likely and unlikely places in certain ways. But if it was thin to begin with, what happens when it's become seemingly thick? You know? and, and, and is there an internal contradiction in the way in which that language works that in fact makes the operation of it all in the present moment a very precarious kind of thing? And I don't know. You know I'm just trying to sort of play around with where that might go. Yeah? Yeah. No, that's a really good idea. I mean, just I, I won't take time away from your question, but the, I mean, the other thing that's striking in the Soviet case, of course, is that it is scientists who themselves are recovering this language in, in one place or another. So there's a sci there, there are multiple dimensions of the science question that would, would be interesting in that in that regard. What there's a great guy at Penn, Ben Nathans, who works on Soviet history, who has this fascinating article in the Slavic Review a couple of years ago about how the initial rise of the language of human rights for Soviet dissidents, you know, mid-1960s, late-1960s, is totally internally driven, and it's about using the Stalin constitution against the state. So there's no, you know, it isn't as if there's a kind of seepage in of a sort of Western liberal kind of orientation about the questions. It's totally within a kind of framework. Both he argues tactically and ideationally. It's not just, the, like, they know the Western framework, but they're using the Soviet constitution against the Soviet state. No, they are, but also the belief in what those rights are have a socialist notion to them as well. Anyway. Um, the question was going to be on um, what domestic pressure groups were interested in sort of blocking the transnational human Yeah, no, the, the Michigan congressman that I was talking about is one of these people that comes onto the floor of the House after the Safe Fuji decision is announced to denounce it. A Republican from Michigan that I think, although I'd have to double check and confirm this, is a UP congressman, which would put him up in a kind of rural area in Michigan. There's more, I think, on the domestic side than simply, well, I shouldn't say simply, but there, there, there is a racial dimension to what's going on. But there also is, you know, this kind of big state fear sort of thing. You know, a conservatism that one would see in places like Upper Michigan or like Upper Wisconsin or like, you know, that would that would find these things very very troubling. There's a there's a in the, the hearing. I, I just, it, it's kind of fun in some ways to read these hearings because it's just you know sort of one 
person paraded in after another. And one of them is a heating and cooling guy from Cincinnati, which I should have read that part of it for you guys since it's in Ohio. But he was supposed to be, again, another one of these notionally plain-spoken Americans who's just emerged on the scene. And it turns out he's the um, manufacturer's representative for the American delegation at the ILO. Why he is, I don't know. Um, and he has this long testimony about how, you know, he's been to Geneva and he's seen what goes on in Geneva and, you know, they just want to, again, the whole sort of uh, some kind of centralizing socialist state taking control of. But that kind of idiom and that kind of fear, I think, is, is what's mapping in for some conservatives who may also have racial issues themselves, but, you know, can stand apart or come together with them. an interesting question. That I have not seen. I, I mean, because there's, a, I mean, the, the business representatives who come and give testimony, there, there's such a kind of confidence in the desirability of the American economy and the consumer American, you know what I mean? It, it, that, it, that, that, that comes through directly and indirectly. But I haven't seen, I don't know. No, I haven't seen that. It doesn't mean it's not there, but I, I, I haven't seen it. Well, you know, one, yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that sort of falls out of this presentation a little bit, and for me, leans very heavily on Carol Anderson's work, is that there is a decision, she argues quite consciously, and, and other scholars who have been working this material in other ways, you know, have kind of come to this as well, for the NAACP and others to consciously walk away from human rights language because, again, of what the discourse is around Bricker. And they believe that that's going to, that tactically, it doesn't make sense to be talking in those terms anymore and retreat quite heavily from that. Now, again, one sees, busy, you know, if you're reading King in the late 1950s, there's some talk about human rights. It certainly is coming back by the mid to late 1960s, although, you know, most of the big civil rights victories would be over by that period of time. But you do have this irony that, in fact, the fluorescence of a kind of civil rights movement is happening outside of the framework of thinking about global human rights. But again, I, Carol's very good on this, I think, that it's, it's very conscious for a kind of top leadership of mainstream civil rights groups to evacuate it before it begins to take them over. And it's wrapped up in McCarthyism as well. It's not just, you know, a, the, the Bricker case. But, global imagination generally. Um, and I guess what 
I mean that that's an interesting I mean I the most I guess what I'm struggling with is trying to do exactly what you're saying and I haven't fully gotten there yet and I but I do think the 70s is the most sort of rich moment to do that because in the 40s you know you can bicker with people well did it really all matter right and are these things at the margins are they not and I don't think they are but you know there's an an argument can be had I think on both sides in the 70s you can't have that argument anymore right it's everywhere in all places, you know, in all times, right? So that you, you can kind of take that out of it. And then it really does become a very compelling kind of project to ask why and what's going on. And, I mean, another thing that someone suggested to me, Dan Rogers suggested to me a couple of years ago was, is there something about a therapeutic culture that also is drawing people into that kind of language? And that that, that too would have a kind of global resonance and significance. So I think there are a lot of frames that might get us out of the strictly kind of the collapse of ideology thing that would help enable that. I think the other thing that becomes kind of tricky, though, about this is which rights at which moment and who's defining them and how are they seen. And some of the, the nicest work that's been going on in the 1970s, and this is Brad and also Barbara Keyes, um, really asking how come well, in the case of the 1970s, um, the Americans putting pressure on the Indonesian government to release political prisoners. Okay? At the same moment, the American government is saying to Indonesia, you go right into East Timor. Don't even worry about that. And you know, a genocide essentially takes place in East Timor. And it's not just the American state, but most of the kind of mainstream human rights organizations East Timor issues are not on the table for them. That's not human rights. That's something else. Political prisoners, that's human rights. So again, these sorts of kind who's who's the gatekeeper? How does the gatekeeper come to those decisions about what those rights are at particular moments? What are the contestations around what the gatekeepers have decided at a given moment what those are? And that you know does add a kind of layer of we can say that the language is every place, but which language exactly is every place at that? Civil and political rights is every place, it seems to me. You start to move beyond that, and it gets more contentious and, and patchier. Yeah? Mark, it seems that sometimes through discussions like of John, John Schmutz, is that his name? Young Schmutz, yeah. He made a, a comment that he was writing this human rights language, but he probably never thought it would have any implication at all. So you get the, I, I got the impression that some of the people using the language were using it Mm-hmm. 
you know, what the war was all about. Yeah. 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 Yeah
Yeah, but that that also, I mean, that comes back to again this this other issue that you know I've thought about in in less. I it, this is actually really helpful, Rick. But it it's about language as tactical and language as belief, and also not dichotomizing those things. So also thinking about the kind of slippages and blurring between the two. And so when you go to the wartime period. One way of saying it is, well, that's what got put out to tell people what we were doing, whether or not underneath it there were, you know, more geopolitical calculations or whatever. So that there's a so it's tactics, right? But it doesn't mean anything beyond tactics in a way, at least coming from an elite. And I don't, I'm that that whole question about how you think that, right? With maybe it is very genuine. Maybe it's resonating not because it. It, it works in a tactical basis, but because that's the way people see the world. But then other things come to kind of complicate that and make it harder for people to see. And yet somehow, by the 1970s, the war is long forgotten, and yet it's back again, right? You know, so where does that sort of resonance come from? The other thing about the 1940s that I think is very, very striking is, and, and it's a kind of dark side in some ways, it seems to me, of this universalizing language in the period, is that the particularities of suffering get erased quite quickly after the war. So, you know, I mean, what happens to the Jews is the, the best case of that, right? It goes from something that might have been perpetrated against particular peoples to the kind of universal misery of the war. You know, and, and Anne Frank's diary, in fact, is the nicest place to see how that goes, right? You go from a very particular Jewish situation to the sort of problem of the universal and the problem of evil. So there's also something happening in the post-war period where people are, the universal has its problems, I guess, you know, and in the way this is posed, it, it, it has certain problems as well. Let me, yeah. doesn't include 
Yeah, very late. So I wonder if you understand that as part of the same sovereignty issue, that is that gender, uh, gender discrimination should still belong as a sovereign decision. It's not, it's not yet a global problem. The cases that came up in the late 90s are if you're raped by a soldier, isn't that a human rights violation? Right, right. And it still isn't if the, right. the soldier was told it was okay. So it's only a human rights violation if the soldier is allowed to do it. If it was mm-hmm. condoned by the, by the mm-hmm. If the military didn't condone it, it still isn't a human rights violation. It still isn't even if the Yeah, I mean, the. The way I'm trying to think about that is there there are increasingly a series of really interesting micro-histories of the immediate post-war period that are dealing with refugee issues that we wouldn't have thought of as human rights projects before, but now that we're cannibalizing everything, you know, they've become human rights projects as well. And an argument that the way in which more formal refugee law and policy will develop by that moment, in fact, is driven as much by the experiences in the camps and a kind of negotiation between DPs and those who are running the camps as it is sitting in a conference table in Geneva. Right. I'm on paper, we need to check off this box. Right, right. And that, in fact, the DPs themselves are pushing things in certain ways. They're being pushed back on and that those things then eventually link back into the ways in which international law is going to be written. Where I've seen the connection made more forcefully is actually with the um, Geneva Convention stuff for non-combatants. That uh, a really interesting thesis from a guy coming out at Northwestern about, again, how the prisoners in American camps who are not, you know, Japanese in turn, but are, you know, other citizens who are being interned, are are consciously pushing at the boundaries of what the conventions will permit. And particularly around issues of the family, around women, around children, in, in very, very interesting ways, that anticipate at least some of the directions in which, again, this more sort of formal treaty thing is working. So I guess my quick response is I don't know enough about how those conventions in 51 were being negotiated, and it's something that I'd like to flesh out a little bit in thinking about that wider period. But in addressing it, I'm also sensitive to this, I think, very interesting sort of international law being written from below and from above simultaneously. And it's nice that there's so much of this new work that's going in that kind of textured, layered way about the bottom-up side of it. We're going to go on. But before everyone just winds away, I want to ask everyone to thank Mark. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to all stay, I suspect. But I didn't want it just to drift away. And then oh, that's no one here is about to thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a great talk. Please go ahead. Thanks. No, it's there. But yeah, there. And then Bob. Yep. Um, I want to talk about music in the 70s. Okay. <laughs> Have you interviewed the plastic people? Yeah. Oh, cool. And, um, and also in Israel and Palestine, and, and what happens with music in the 70s, you know, in, in sort of becoming uh, 
very political that they all they all you know talk whether it's uh, you know resolution two forty two or whatever they'll all uh, refer in some way or other to the UN. But the real key for them is the Civil Rights Commission. And that's where they hang their hat, and, and um, that that's what they can see uh -huh. driving them to this new kind of. Yeah. Um, I, in, in one way, in my teaching, I have, because I, I really like Tom Stoppard's play Rock and Roll, and I, and I like to have students do that, because I think that actually gives them a sense that music was integral in thinking about where, you know, Havel and Charter 77 and, and all those people came from. And students tend to respond, sometimes, I know, I'm a history person, so I probably don't teach literature as skillfully as I should, but I, I'm surprised how engaged students are, actually, in that particular work in, in thinking through those problems. So from that standpoint, I, you know, in trying to think about how to talk to students about some of these issues, yes. For myself, I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that they're hanging their hats around the civil rights movement and not the Universal Declaration. And I think that that larger issue is one that has to kind of come out in thinking about the 70s as well. We were talking about this a little bit at dinner last night, that when in the United States in the early 1970s, there are some congressmen who start to have hearings about human rights. First time, you know, that the, the Congress is doing that, long before Carter is on the scene. Um, and about Chile, and about Brazil, and about Uruguay. That, that's where it starts, right? Um, and so they're having, um, you know, the, they have some older people representing kind of not the amnesty NGO world, but the sort, you know, the League of Rights of Man world. And, and one of them starts talking about how, you know, there's a history of this in the 40s, and there was a universal declaration. There was a, and these congressmen are just totally baffled, you know, as they're, as you're reading the transcript. Really? There was? Could we, can, can we get more information? And so, so they staff out a little history so that they can kind of get themselves up to speed, you know, in the, so there's some, I mean, they're, they're also, as much as I'm trying to recover a moment of the 40s, it's clear that that moment is pretty deeply repressed for even some of those people who are most engaged in, you know, in, in the actual moment. So in a way, what the congressmen are doing in 73 seems very much the same as what people are doing in a more cultural realm in terms of, yeah, it would be the civil rights movement for them, I think, that would have been the propelling, initial propelling thing um, as well. I wish, I, I'm good about cultural forms in my teaching, I guess I'm just really nervous about my abilities to, I, I, I'm, using, I'm using photography, I'm using painting, and I kind of have a comfort zone there. <laughs> but I, I don't know that I have an interpretive comfort zone about the music, and it's not, because that's not important or it wouldn't be useful, but it's like you can only, it took me a really long time with the painting and the photography, so <laughs> I don't know if I can go there too. Bob. Yeah. Uh, the American civil rights leaders may 
the call for rights not based on some broad universal declaration, but in terms of the American Constitution. So they could they could declare as much as the gay rights movement or the Hispanic rights movement or all the rights movements that emerged in the late 60s and early 70s. And your moment, and I know moment is one of your favorite <laughs> I know you don't like it, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah. Cold War yeah. So a lot of the new rights talk, I think, is coming out of the major hegemonic power, which itself has done so much to subvert human rights worldwide. But it's, but it, it's of course, it's contentious. It's coming from the political left. Mm-hmm. Nixon and Kissinger don't accept this talk. <laughs> no, no, no. 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 So, you know, I, I think somehow your project has to play with what I think is the centrality mm-hmm. of the United States mm-hmm. to this. But even your example of East Timor, you said that they, that East Timor received, well, outside the context within which you could apply human rights. Well, it depends on what part of the political spectrum you're on. I was in graduate school at that yeah. time. Everyone on the political left thought it was an outrage. Everyone thought it was typical of the amoral policies of Nixon and Kissinger. I mean, that was part of the right. fabric of political debate in with these two more, I mean, the argument, and I'm really just like ventriloquizing Brad, essentially, is that it's the state, and it's also major human rights organizations and funders that, for however upset they may be internally, don't go there. And so the question that he tries to set in motion is, why can you go one place, at least publicly, and not the other place? And that isn't to suggest that there aren't grassroots movements who are concerned about those questions in that period of time. I mean, just a couple thoughts threading through that. Because, I I mean, I I take your central point, and I I think it's an important one. Um, But just playing off a couple elements of it. One with, you know, again, this business about who chooses to use the language when and divisions within it. It's interesting in the gay rights movement in the 1970s, again, early on, that there are, and again, I don't know a ton about this, but a little, that there are quite steep divisions about whether to use the term human rights or whether to talk about gay rights or to, to either foreground it being about gay and lesbian peoples or to do human. And as I understand, I mean, I think that the debates there were quite complicated, but one fault line of those debates would have been more conservative people within the movement saw human rights as better because they thought that would have legs, right? And that it would be more mainstream. Just as it seems to me African-American groups before the early 1950s thought going in that direction might work for them as well. 
But more radical members of you know, the gay rights movement were implacably opposed to it. Harvey Milk apparently just thinks this is an absolutely stupid idea because it, he argues that part of it is that people have to accept what it is they're being asked to accept, not to. So again, that sort of use of language and, and the interesting ways in which people debate that back and forth. The Biafra and the Bangladeshi cases I think actually open up a whole nother set of issues that I haven't gotten to, and as the time gets late, we'll not try to get to in any full way. But it also is the issue of where humanitarianism and histories of humanitarianism and humanitarian intervention, which have long, long histories, and human rights start to intersect. And again, I don't mean this from a kind of scholarly standpoint trying to sort of put a frame on it, but how are actors at the moment articulating the relationship or lack of relationship between those two things. I, I, from what I know, with Bangladesh and Biafra, the, there are parallel conversations that often aren't intersecting at that moment. On the other hand, with the Geneva uh, agreements you know, in 49, there's actually very explicit conversations about linking laws of war and human rights which in the end, the British and the <laughs> French and the Americans don't want to have anything to do with, but you know, it's out there and people are talking about it on the table. So I also think there's a, in terms of how the issues are, and then you, you now, you know, there's a human rights team embedded in any humanitarian intervention. There's no, there's no room between the two anymore. So I, there's something to be said, I think, about thinking about how actors at the time perceptually are identifying and thinking about those questions. To what extent are humanitarianism and human rights, the same thing, different, you know, and, and again, the different actors who are involved perceiving them in similar and different sorts of ways. On the larger point, though, Bob, about, you know, something's going on in the United States, yes. And, you know, what I, my sort of approach into a lot of these questions is often to sort of bracket the domestic and to try to think more about the transnational and then eventually try to bring that back in. And, and I, it, it may be just like, it's the only way I can think it through, so it may not be the right way to do it, but that's how I think about it. And I think what I don't want to lose in thinking about the 70s is it's happening everywhere, and it's happening in terms of human rights as a label everywhere but here first. And I want to think a little bit about what the implications are of that when a civil rights language and a human rights language starts to come into play, you know? But I think unless I can capture something about what that importation is in, it, 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 it's harder to do that mix back and forth. So I, that's the, and I think I'm more at the moment of trying to figure out, the moment again, but trying to figure out what, what's going on in the convergence than putting it back in. But I'll get there, I'll get there, yeah. Human language for which you had to mobilize 
Which it seems in the Soviet case is it taken to the kind of nth degree of that. But there are also these interesting questions about, you know, the tactical and the, the felt, right? You know, and how one begins to sort of tack between that kind of... You're, yeah, I mean, yes, it becomes a powerful weapon to make those claims, but what if you also are believing in the weapon? Or what if you're... I mean, what happens in the Latin American case, I think, is on the Latin American left, they're people who really don't like that people go that way, right? And so then there's some really bitter fights, this is in both Chile and Uruguay, yeah. about the tactical yeah. use of that, because as far as they're concerned, the larger struggle gets, you know, collapsed in that. And one should say, and maybe we can bring it to a close with that, but I, Greg Grandin has this wonderful piece about truth commissions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that with truth commissions, as he argues, with the exception of the Guatemalan Commission, which of course he was on, but let's bracket that, because um, <laughs> I think he's right about this. They're all written as if there's no politics, right? They're forces of evil, they're forces of darkness, they're kind of universal, they're always there, they move back and forth, but there's no politics, there's no economics, there's no social. And I think that's what I was trying to get at earlier with this, you see that in the 1940s fleetingly, but you start to see it much more fully in the 70s and the 1980s. And I think it goes into something like East Timor, for some people anyway, that, you, that, that the, the human rights language is alive. The actual conditions that produce the violations. So if you read amnesty reports all through the 70s and 80s, every introduction to every amnesty annual report, which I have read over the last couple of years, says the same thing. We don't care about the conditions. You don't need to know why this happened. All you need to know is that this is a violation of this thing that all people have intrinsic in themselves. Well, to a certain extent, that's right, isn't it? Right? That you, you know, intrinsically ought to not be tortured or ought to not. But there's also something kind of problematic about, well, you just don't need to know anything about why the circumstances were ever created. That's too complicated, Amnesty says in one report. But in other reports, because Salaket is running Amnesty for a couple of years, 79, 80, Salaket's also the one writing these Truth Commission reports in Chile. It's the same kind of language. You know, it's, it's sort of the kind of Weberian, you know, sort of politics is vocation kind of thing. You know, I mean, it, it, again, which comes back to the sort of tactical or belief or so there, I, there are just like as appealing as it all is, and I sometimes worry that it's too. I present it in too appealing a sort of way. There, there are these very complicated things that go beyond the sort of cultural. You know, there was the moment where it was all a Western construct, right? And, and the, 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 you can go there in certain ways, but I think there are even more deeper, fundamental kinds of contradictions in the whole thing that are problems. Mm -hmm. and process of them. So it's 
I always think I'm kind of getting this book wrapped up, and then <laughs> I think, no, it's got to, I got to do this, I got to do that. <laughs> but thanks, and thanks for all these questions. They've just been really helpful to me again in trying to think through a lot of this stuff. It was a real pleasure. Yeah.